Welcome to a special election episode of Today in Ohio, normally a news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. In our special election episodes, we're talking to candidates from statewide office. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with our chief political writer, Seth Richardson. And today we are talking to Jim Renacci, candidate for governor as a Republican. Welcome, Mr. Renacci. Thank you, Chris and Seth, and uh, I appreciate being on here with you. Yeah, Jim, thank you for uh, coming on here. I um, want to point out that we invited the rest of the Republican candidates as well, and um, looks like you're going to be the only one that we're talking to. So, again, want to thank you for coming on. Um, as noted, you are a Republican who is challenging an incumbent Republican governor. Um, and, you know, one thing, I, the state has lost more than 145,000 jobs since DeWine has been in office, or roughly around there. Why should voters be convinced that, you know, leaving Republicans in power and picking a different Republican as the head of government uh, will yield any different results? Well, Seth, I don't think it's about Republicans, Democrats, independents. What I think it's about is leaders. I think it's about somebody who has done it in the past, has somebody who has created jobs, employed people. You know, I have a record of coming here uh, in uh, 39 years ago, believe it or not, starting a company. Uh, going from one company to 60 company, creating 1,500 jobs, employing over 3,000 people. I understand what it takes. I saw what Ohio was 39 years ago, the powerhouse state it was, and I've seen what Democrats and Republicans have done to it over the last 25 years uh, by using old policies and outdated policies and not changing anything. And again, I blame this cycle of problems has gone all the way back 25 years so that it's Republicans and Democrats who continue to take our state in the wrong direction. But you're running under the Republican label and you're going to have probably um, a lot of carryover from the last legislature over into the next one, depending on how redistricting goes. Why should they expect any different results, though, is the question, especially because you are going to have to work with the state house on some things if you're elected. Well, absolutely. And Seth, what you what I believe you have to do is you have to convince people of a plan. You have to work a plan. The problem in government too often is that there is no priority set. There is no long-term vision. The vision is only till the next election. And I think what Ohio actually needs is a vision of probably 10 years out, uh, somebody who can actually sit down with Republicans and Democrats, which I've been able to do, uh, and somebody who can work a plan that will move our state into that top 10. I mean, right now we rank anywhere from 35th to 50th in most categories, but you need a leader who's going to lead. Uh, too often politicians on both the Republican side and Democrat side are more worried about the next election, not the next generation. And I'm going to continue to be that person who's worried about the next generation. I don't have to worry about the next election. I do believe if you do the right things for Republicans, Democrats, independents, Ohioans in totality, that they'll elect you um, and help you move the ball forward. And if you don't, um, they will not reelect you. And it's one of the problems that we have with Governor DeWine. Uh, take me down the that tenure, the path of that tenure plan. What what exactly in those you know that tenure plan would you do differently than say what's been done over the previous ten years? Well, it's pretty simple, Seth. Uh, what I believe you need to do is you need to look. It's the same thing I did in the business world for over 30 years. We have states that are doing much better than us, and we have uh, states that are failing like us. What we need to do is look at the states that are growing and prospering and determine what's 
the different things they are doing. One thing for sure I can tell you is that we spend too much in this in this state. I'll give you an example. Ohio's budget last year was $80 billion this year, the one that was approved. Um, but Florida, with twice the population, so we're at around 10.7 million people. Uh, our budget is 80 million. Uh, Florida has 22 million people and their budget is 88 billion. So only $8 billion more for twice the amount of people. But take that same number and compare it to states of similar size, North Carolina, Georgia's and others, their spending is all, almost half of our spending. And our tax system is antiquated. I mean, let's look at the states that are doing great. Uh, Tennessee, uh, you could, Florida, Texas, Indiana, right next door to us, is considered one of the top 10 states in the country for tax, um, you know, for tax policy where Ohio is 37th for tax policy. So we have to see what Indiana's doing and make some changes. One of the things that I would want to do over a long period of time is develop a 10 year plan to get us to a consumption tax model like many of the other states that are doing very well are doing. The income tax, let's face it, that is a, um, a tax that not only is problematic in the sense that most people if let's, let's say you're, uh, you run a business, you know, you're going to do things to try and reduce your income tax. It's, it's normal. You're going to move to places and do things. And that's why companies are leaving our state. We have something called the cat tax. Another example, why would anybody come to a state where you could be losing five, 10, $20 million a year, and you're still going to pay a cat tax. I mean, that's a serious problem. We need to change our economic policies. We need to get into the 21st century and, and uh, get away from the 20th century policies. We just need to be able to compete with states that are doing better than us. So moving on, you know, we've had multiple mass shootings around the state, but uh, hasn't really seemed to be anything done about them. Uh, what do you think, if anything, should be done? Well, let's face it, it's another issue. We, uh, we have five of the 50th, 50 most dangerous cities in the country per capita. Um, there are some that say Cleveland's number two per capita. But in the end, what we really need to be doing is, uh, look, I'm not a believer, and I would tell you I'm a supporter of the Second Amendment. Um, you, uh, you can go to Washington, D.C., where I lived for eight years, and find that even though that's a gun-free zone and you can't carry a gun, bad guys had guns. In fact, many of my staffers were held up by gunpoint in gun-free zones. And we also know that um, we had a shooting uh, of a congressman in a gun-free zone. So the idea that you're going to eliminate um, guns is just ridiculous. What we really should do is make sure we protect the Second Amendment, protect those that really believe, that really believe um, in protecting themselves. I do think we, we need to, we have a uh, castle doctrine in the state right now, which says you can protect yourself in your home. I think you need to be able to protect yourself in your business as well. But at the end, we need to be, make sure that we are supporting our first responders, our police officers, giving them the, the uh, ability uh, to protect us. I am not for defunding the police. I'm for supporting the police funding the police, supporting our first responders, and as a governor, you need to be able to make sure you have their back uh, when it comes to all those issues and make sure that they're trained well as, as well. I mean, 
you know, people will say, well, there's some bad police officer. Well, there's some bad attorneys. There's some bad reporters. There's some bad accountants. Not taking a shot at you, Seth, but, you know, there's bad people in every way of life. And what we got to do is we got to train people. By the way, I'm a CPA too, so there's some bad accountants. Um, we need to be able to train people so that they're better prepared uh, to work uh, in, in the police departments. And I think that's a real key role for governors to make sure we're, we have the back of police officers, but at the same time, we give them the necessary tools to understand the best way to police a city and the best way to be part of that city. And I think that's, that's, a, that's a key. But, you know, police organizations and first responders have come out against things like open carry and stand your ground saying it makes, you know, the state more dangerous. So how do you resolve support? I, I assume you support uh, things like open carry and stand your ground. Uh, how do you resolve this, you know, wanting to support the police while, you know, supporting policies that they say make the state more dangerous? Well, remember, um, bad guys carry guns and bad guys don't pay attention to the rules. So it's great to say, well, we, we don't want to support those areas, but at the same time, the bad guys carry the guns. They don't care about stand your ground. They don't care about anything. They're just bad guys. So in the end, I think what we have to do is allow people to protect themselves and at the same time, make sure the police know that um, we should all be working together to be um, cognizant of the bad guys, but at the same time, uh, protecting those who need the protections that are needed. So, um, look, I'm never going to tell you that we should we should uh, go against our Second Amendment rights, um, and, uh, and that's one of the things that I believe very strongly in. Uh, but uh, and but I also believe very strongly in the police. And look, I talk to police officers all the time. They're not as concerned about open carry as they are concerned about making sure they have the support of a governor and also the funding to make sure that, um, you know, the necessary training is available to them. Well, but they're on record criticizing those, you know, policies that have recently been passed. Do you think that they are mistaken in saying that um, open carry and stand your ground would make Ohio more dangerous or at least their jobs more dangerous? You know, some are on record of saying that and others aren't. One thing I've learned, Seth, in, in going to Washington is for everyone that has an opinion, there's somebody else that has another opinion. I think in the end, it's important to be able to work with our police and fire uh, and all our first responders to make sure they are safe as well, uh, but at the same time, protect our Second Amendment rights. So it looks like we're on the tail end of the coronavirus pandemic, at least hopefully, right? Uh, you know, cases have really declined and everything, but still very hard two years for um, Ohio, right? More than 37,000 plus deaths. Um, what do you, what did you learn from the coronavirus pandemic? Well, here's what I, here's what I learned very quickly. I've learned that uh, when you take people's rights away, um, it's not the country or the state that it should have been. I also believed that we took a, we, we allowed a governor to pick a, um, a medical director who basically, uh, put fear in people. You know, fear. And that wasn't right either. I think in the end, um, we should have learned from what we knew. We should have made sure that the citizens of Ohio um, were well, made well aware of the issues and concerns 
but not start taking people's rights away. I mean, the best example I can give you, no governor, Republican or Democrat governor, should say that you have to close a bar or restaurant at 10 o'clock. I mean, and I use that as an extreme, but think about that. Where did that come from? I mean, at 10.01, does the coronavirus pop out? I mean, these are things that just didn't make any sense. And yet, we were telling mom and pa stores you had to close down, but we were leaving big boxes open. I mean, and that's why we've lost so many jobs. At the same time, uh, you know, we, we required shutting down schools, and we forgot that what that does to the social uh, and emotional um, learning skills of, of our children by not looking at the science as to how many deaths were actually occurring. Sure, any death is a, is a problem, even if it's one death. But at some point in time, you have to make sure that you're not overreaching. And I think this governor did overreach. Um, I think Republicans, um, more than Democrats, uh, I realize, would say that. But in the end, I, I just believe um, what he did to our state was not only damaging, uh, but was sinful. And it caused a lot of people to lose their homes, their cars, uh, their jobs, uh, and unrecoverable. We've, we've lost 40 or 50% of businesses that may never come back because of the overreach of what this governor did. So um, what I learned was that, you know what, we, we should take uh, any pandemic like that serious, but we have to balance. It has to be balanced with uh, the economy as well. It has to be a balance with people's rights. And I, I said this earlier, Seth, I think you go back and you look at what other states did. Why do we rank today 32nd in recovery from the coronavirus uh, pandemic, where states like even California are ahead of Ohio? So clearly we didn't do things right. Uh, but the states that are really blossoming and booming economically are states like Florida and South Dakota and, and Texas and many of the other states that said, hey, wait a minute, we shouldn't be taking away people's rights. Do you think that the state should consider ending the death penalty? Well, when people ask me that question, look, um, I am a Catholic and, and I'm not just a practicing Catholic and I'm not just a devout Catholic, I'm a faithful Catholic. And, and uh, you know, I believe in the First Amendment and I believe in the right to practice your religious faith. And in my religious faith as a Catholic, I believe life begins at conception and ends at natural death. So um, it's easy as a Catholic, I would not wanna put my faith in front of the people's uh, will in Ohio. And that's why I said, as long as the death penalty is there, I will always stand for it. Um, but I do believe uh, that if people decided that we needed to eliminate the death penalty and I was a governor, I would sign that, that bill as well uh, because of my Catholic faith and my belief. But at the same time, I, always, I also wanna protect the law. And as long as the people believe that um, the death penalty is, is something they want in this state, then I'm going to continue, I would continue to support it as a governor. Would you personally support uh, ending the death penalty? Well, again, what I, what I, I thought I'd just answer that question. I've said time and time again that I personally, as a Catholic, uh, would support it and as a governor would sign it if that legislation came forward. But if it doesn't, I will support the death penalty as a governor 
um, if this state, if that's the direction the state wants to go forward. Okay. Um, so the local government fund has been shrinking for years. Uh, do you have any plans to replenish that somehow? Well, look, uh, one of the reasons the local government funds uh, were, sh were shrinking is because the state was losing so much money that they had to look and see where they were spending it. And, uh, and remember, local government funds were brought into place many, many years ago when previous governors said, we have such a surplus of cash, we should give it back to the cities. Um, I'm a big believer that if you have a surplus of cash, you should give it back to the taxpayers. But that's where, that's where local government funds were born. Um, in the end, I'm a big believer that cities and, and the state have to be able to work together and support each other. But I would rather have less of a income tax uh, and a tax which is um, a consumption tax in totality in the end with the elimination of income tax and at the same time allow cities to prosper and grow on their own. You know, if we had zero income tax, uh, and by the way, I would also tell you that at some point in time, and I know the mayors, uh, and, by the, and, and as you know, I was a mayor, um, at some point in time, we need to look at the, 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 all of the taxes we have, including city income tax. Why is it only three or four uh, states have a city income tax, yet they all have prospering cities? I mean, Tennessee is one of the states that I think of that went away from a city income tax but their cities are prospering. Uh, we need to look at all of those things and figure out a way so the state can prosper, the cities can prosper together. Um, and in the end, it's about having a tax system that works so that we're all moving the state forward to be a powerhouse that it needs to be. Well, what kind of tax system do you see as moving the state forward and getting you know, some of these local governments funding as well? Well, I think it's, a, I've said all along, we got to look at the cities that we got to look at the states that are that are in the top ten. Let's let's look at the states that are doing better than us, and they're all a they're all a consumption tax. So I think we need to we need to start modeling Ohio to become one of the top ten states in the country, and we need to eliminate the income tax, uh, which means we'll eliminate the city income tax too. But model our cities, our our, our state and our cities like. Uh, other states like Texas and Tennessee uh, and so forth. So um, none of this is easy. You can't do it day one. One of the biggest problems we have in, in our state, and I told you this earlier, is that we spend too much. We can never have a consumption tax in a state with 10.7 million people and an $80 billion budget. It's one of the problems. I've already started working with the Tax Foundation in Washington, D.C., and clearly we spend too much to ever change our tax system. But I would also tell you, Seth, um, we have, there, there are five different taxing levels that you can have in any state. And Ohio is also one of the four or five states that uses every single one of them. That's a problem. That's a serious problem. We, again, we need to look at what we're doing, just like any business, like any family, like any state, and determine how we can be more competitive. And I think we need to look at other states and, and make some of those determinations. So in the end, this is probably a 10-year plan, can't be done immediately, but I think over the next 10 years, we need to put a vision out there. You asked me earlier, what would make Jim Renese different? 
than any other governor. I mean, I'm going to sit down with Republicans and Democrats in the House and Senate. I'm going to say, let's let's work out a plan that makes us competitive. Um, let's look at what other states are doing. You're welcome to be part of that. Uh, and in the end, um, let's not argue about what needs to be done. Let's come up with a solution together as to how we can compete with Florida, Texas, Indiana, you know, all these other states, Tennessee, that are doing so much better than us. And, uh, and that's going to mean some changes. We talk about the legislature and between ECOT, payday lenders and First Energy, there's been a pretty rampant culture of corruption in Columbus, or at least a seemingly rampant culture of uh, corruption in Columbus. What, what would you do to, um, or would you do anything to address that? And what would you do? Well, again, uh, pay for play is rampant in Ohio. It was rampant with Democrats. It's rampant with Republicans. Um, you know, we've had the last two uh, attorney generals, um, Cordray and, uh, and DeWine, use the pay for play mechanism to raise money. Um, it's pretty simple. Uh, and, and I've already said my solution would be that we need to put a, a spotlight on donations. We need to look at the system that allows you to take a donation from a law firm and give them a contract. Uh, and that's in the attorney general side, but also let's look at the statewide. Why, why are, why was a governor get a, you know, and I've heard up to $5 million from first energy and then be able to sign off on legislation that would have helped first energy. I mean, those are things that need to be spotlighted. Jim Renacci has already said that we need to change our system. If you donate, and we'll pick a number, I'll work with the state legislature. It's funny, Republicans and Democrats, neither of them like this because both of them raise money off of this. But I think we need to come up with a number. <laughs> Let's just say it's $5,000. If you donate more than $5,000 to any statewide candidate, you cannot get a contract um, with the state and you cannot be appointed to a position that pays you money with the state. That makes it pretty simple. Too often, governors, Republican governors and Democrat governors appoint people that have no business being appointed uh, to positions just because they supported them, whether it was financially or not financially. And, and I think we, we should be appointing people who have the background and experience um, to run those offices. I can give you two examples in the current administration. We have a director of agriculture who has never had any background or experience, a nice woman, but never back, any background or experience in agriculture. And we have the chancellor of higher education who has no background in higher education. Yet that is one of the highest paid positions um, in the state right now. And what we really should do is have people in those positions. And I just picked two. I could, I could probably pick 10. Um, we should have people in those positions that have the background experience to move our state forward. Well, do you think the dark money is a problem, though? Because, you know, some we, we saw with the first energy scandal that a lot of this stuff gets washed through different avenues and then it becomes very hard to tell where it came from. So is there should that be addressed as well? And if so, how? Well, look, I, I, I said the best way of doing it is you see how much money flows through. The, uh, the, the problem is both parties, the Republican Party and the Democrat Party, use their parties uh, legally, by the way, legally, uh, to move money 
through the party to exceed the already capped amounts, individual amounts that are allowed to be spent on candidates. So, you know, there is a lot of work that needs to be done to make sure that if you're going to write a check for $14,000 and you really do support a candidate, which is, is approximately the amount that you can max out to, how do you how are you able to write a check for $80,000 and and uh, um, when the when the cap is 14,000. I think those are the problems. You know, this governor, the the number one, um, uh, if you go back in 2018, and again, I'm not picking on him because Democrats do it too, but it's easy just to go back to the current governor. His, uh, his top donor was the Ohio Republican Party. His second top donor was the Summit County Republican Party. His third top donor was First Energy. Uh, but I guarantee you First Energy was also probably a pretty good donor to the Ohio Republican Party and also a pretty good donor to the Summit County Republican Party directly or indirectly. So I think what we need to do is start to take, you know, we need to really drill down and have transparency to make sure that we know exactly where the money's coming from and that nobody gets a contract or nobody gets an appointment because of the dollars uh, that were you know, donated to these type these candidates. Well, it's interesting that you bring up transparency. My colleague Jeremy Pelzer just published a story about uh, your campaign posting these stories from kind of pay-to-play websites, the uh, Cleveland Reporter and Buckeye Reporter, things of that nature. And I want to know what your relationship is with these websites and um, you know the stories that you've posted on your uh, personal and campaign Facebook. I mean, do you have any connection to these organizations? Have you paid them in any form or fashion? I, I have no relationship. In fact, you know what happens? I have a Google search that shows me every story that comes up in regards to my campaign. And what I do is when I see those, I take them and I push them onto my uh, personal Facebook page. I actually wish uh, the Plain Dealer, uh, the Columbus Dispatch, and some of the other papers would pick up on some of this stuff. But, you know, I, I guess when papers like the Plain Dealer and the Columbus Dispatch and the Cincinnati Enquirer aren't picking up on stories, um, some of these other local entities are picking up on stories too. I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting. When the Ohio Star showed up uh, a, a year or so ago, everybody said, oh my, where are they coming from? Well, uh, again, that's a Tennessee organization and I post their stories as well. Well, yeah, but you talk about, you know, local organizations, quote unquote, and these aren't local organizations. These, you know, look basically like an AstroTurf campaign by, uh, you know, a guy from Illinois, uh, Brian Timpone, who runs, you know, multiple of these sites all around the states. And you kind of stylize yourself as a, you know, a straight shooter for the people. But, you know, so, so why post these types of stories to try to, you know, confuse people, frankly? Seth, are you telling me that the story, you know, I don't even know what you're asking me. I mean, if somebody's going to write a story about Jim Renacci, I don't care if it's the Plain Dealer, I don't care if it's Cincinnati Enquirer, which we post, or if it's um, these other entities that show up on my uh, Google search every every day or whatever you call that. I mean, anytime Jim Renacci shows up in a story, I get it. Anytime that it's a story, whether it comes from the Plain Dealer, whether it comes from the Cincinnati Enquirer, where it comes from the, the, the star or some of these other organizations that you're talking about, um, I'm going to post them. Okay. 
Uh, you know, we wanted to ask one more question. The the gas tax has become a significant uh, issue in the country, in Ohio. There's an effort to roll back the, the tax increase, gas tax increase. Mike DeWine had pushed through when he first took office before everything went to pieces. You spent a lot of time when you were in Congress trying to work on a bipartisan plan to do some things with the gas tax, which puts you in a unique position to have an opinion on this. What do you think should be happening right now with the gas tax? Well, when I was in Congress, it was interesting. I got so mad that nobody ever wanted to fund roads and bridges uh, with legitimate uh, ways of funding it. In fact, I always chuckle. Uh, I did not vote for the last uh, funding bill when I was in Congress. Uh, to fund roads and bridges, I voted against it because it was made up of gimmicks. Uh, I'll never forget uh, some of those gimmicks that were never going to happen, absolutely never going to happen, but they were pie in the sky <laughs> ways to try and uh, come up with gimmicks to fund the gas, uh, you know, our roads and bridges. So one of the things I did in Washington was I actually had a bipartisan bill that I was pushing that Congress was scared to death of, and it basically said, they were gonna raise the gas tax one penny. It basically represented a cup of coffee a year for everybody in our country. And, and I was gonna give Congress three years, it was two or three years, to come up with a plan to fund roads and bridges. And we had plenty of, um, we, we, had, we had plenty of hearings on it, and it was all kind of user fees, whether it's weight, whether it's miles driven, whether it's gas, all of these things. And, and, and that bill basically said, okay, Congress, instead of having gimmicks, you got a couple years based on this penny uh, to come up with a plan. And if you can't come up with a plan, since you don't like to raise the gas tax, then the gas tax will go up. So it was a penalty for not doing anything. And Republic, neither Republicans or Democrats, the majority of them like that idea because it would have forced Congress to make a decision. In Ohio, um, you know, we do have to take care of our roads and bridges, and we have to have a plan. And I think in the end, um, we should be cognizant that there are other ways of doing it other than just raising the gas tax. But I am a believer in the user fee method. If, if you use something, you should pay for it. Um, and, you know, the 98-year-old or 95-year-old, like my mother, 96-year-old who's not driving, um, why should she pay for the roads that she's not driving on? So it's one thing I did learn in Congress. There are a lot of ways to pay for roads and bridges. They sh there are a lot of user fee options that should be looked at. I think all of them should be looked at. It's just too easy to just raise a gas tax. Uh, and that's now, something you would do if you were governor? You would, you would look at that in Ohio? I would look at all options. We should be looking at all the options to make sure that our roads and bridges and our infrastructure is taken care of and it should be a user-based user fee-based uh scenario okay well listen thanks for taking the time i know it's hard to uh get scheduled we appreciate that you're the only republican in the race that is sitting down to to have a conversation about these important issues well thank you both and uh, i truly appreciate having the opportunity to speak with you about uh, issues that are important to ohio all right, you've been listening to a special election episode of Today in Ohio. Come back each weekday for the regular episodes when we discuss the news stories of the day.